In Colossians, we have such a marvelous teaching before us of what we've been calling the Christocentric, the Christ-centered life. To be Christ-centered. Now, I'm going to finish up chapter 1 this morning. We'll begin in verse 24. And to make it easy for you, the title of this teaching, Filling, Fulfilling, Filled, and Full. Those are your four points. So you don't even have to ask me afterwards, what was point number three, Rick? I missed point number 17. What was that? There they are. Okay? Those are the four points. We will take them one by one as we walk through these verses. But let's read them first. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Hmm. Uh, Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your behalf, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. The struggle is real. Are you familiar with that one? (laughs) The struggle is real. It's become really a social media meme of late. It came out about six years ago, the phrase started to get coined, the struggle is real. It was actually coined in rap music and caught on on the street and people began to use it. And really what it intends is to convey whining over first world problems. That's the struggle is real. You know, it's Charlie Brown standing alone on the pitcher's mound as the rain pours down. The struggle is real. You know, it's Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. The struggle is real. Flat tire on the Lexus. The struggle is real. Can't get a Wi-Fi signal. The struggle is real. Too rushed to stop in for that morning latte. The struggle is real. And it's a funny phrase, and we kind of use it tongue-in-cheek. But you know what? From time to time, even in the first world, the struggle is real. People deal with pains and hardships and heartaches. We all do. We face these things. Maybe it's you this morning. Maybe for you, for all the tongue-in-cheek, the struggle really is real today. And in Paul's case, it was. Having gone through our study through Acts, and now several of the letters of Paul, we're already recognizing how much pain and hardship and struggle the Apostle went through. How his life was flipped upside down from the moment he gave it to Jesus. The moment he turned it around, I mean, you probably wouldn't put Paul up as the poster child for, hey, become a Christian and your life can be like this. Because it was hard. And it was a struggle. And there was sorrow. And there were afflictions. And there was tribulation that the apostle faced. Few of us have known the type of struggle that Paul faced almost on a daily basis for our faith. Few of us have gone through those tribulations. But remarkably, as we read this passage, 
Paul says his sufferings cause him to rejoice. He's excited about it. There's something in the pain that brings joy to the heart of the apostle. And remarkably, that's the way it is in the Christ-centered life. I'm not talking about a masochistic pleasure in pain. But I'm talking about the fact that if you are rebuffed for believing in Jesus, that there's a sense of you've done the right thing. You know, if you're hurt because you decide, I have to take a stand in these days. If you lose a job because you say Christ is more important, then you, like Paul, have every reason to rejoice in such affliction. What we understand in the Christ-centered life is we can suffer through anything with this truth, that the treasure outshines the trials. That the reward far surpasses the rough patches. That as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Of course, there are days where you might say, my afflictions do not seem light and momentary. There are some who can say, I have had ongoing pain. I have had ongoing hardship. I have had ongoing affliction. And others who would say, and every time I open my mouth for Jesus, it just gets worse. Momentary light afflictions, Paul? I would remind you what Jesus Himself said in Revelation 22.12, Behold, I am coming quickly. As we sang, soon and very soon. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what He has done. What I've done... That's what I get payment for? Hey, remember Jesus also said in John 6.29, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's where the reward comes. It comes to those who have trusted beyond circumstance. And we can rejoice in that. But, there is another key to enduring trials and tribulations with joy. There's another facet of this. I I have to be honest, I don't think I've ever really thought about it this way. A motive in addition to the glory to be revealed. I mean, it's one thing to say, I will suffer today for what I know is coming tomorrow. I will endure hardship now for what I know is going to happen then. That's one thing. And that's powerful and it's potent and it can be very helpful in a difficult life. However, there's another way, another key to dealing with afflictions as they come and go. Paul's letter here to the Colossians, again, is about living that Christocentric life. This is not a letter of theology, though it contains theology. It is, in its fullest sense, a letter of practicality. That we can live these things and live by these teachings. It's all about a life that is lived in faith in God as fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Now that full revelation of Jesus was everything to Paul. In fact, you could kind of look at it this way. They're bookends to the life of the apostle, which could be bookends to the life of a follower of Jesus. The revelation of Jesus gets us rolling in faith. And then at the end, the revelation of Jesus face to face brings all glory to bear. And we just have to make it in between. But there is something taking place in between that Paul addresses here that is truly worth our attention. 
I want to look at fullness this morning, and as you see, again, in those four aspects, filling, fulfilling, filled, and full. Try to look at the whole gamut of this idea of living the Christ-centered life. So these are really four more aspects of living the Christ-centered life. And the first one is filling, or filling up. And it answers the question of affliction in a way that you may not expect. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Filling up is the word antana pleruo. Pleruo is a word we've talked about in recent weeks here. It means full. Pleroma is from that same root and it means fullness. Well, antana pleruo is an extension of that word and it means filling up. Just as you would fill up a jar or or, or fill up a container. It's a a filling up. So it's a, a filling in process, if you will. Colossians 1.19 tells us it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in, dwell in Jesus. So Jesus was full. Okay, He wasn't filling up in His life. He was full. From the moment of conception forward, full of God because He was God. But antanapleruo, the word used here, what is lacking, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, Paul rejoices that he gets to do his part in filling up what must be filled, that is what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Does that bother anyone? I read that sentence and I say, hang on a second. For the first time in all of our years of Bible study, I see a proof text for purgatory. Paul just said, I'm doing my part in filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. So there's something missing, and I've got to fill that up with my own pain, with my own affliction, and therefore I am following Jesus. Whoa, wait a minute. I thought the work was finished. I thought it was done. Tetelestai. Right? Isn't that the word Jesus used? It is finished, John 19.30. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The work was done. The Hebrew writer talks about how the priests stand every day in the temple doing the work of God, and yet how the Son of God has sat down because the work's done. Complete, filled. Is there anything I can add to it? No. So how in the world can I hear Paul talk about filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? I read the verse, and honestly, if it wasn't in Scripture, I'd be offended. But it is in Scripture. How is this possible? If Jesus said... To die, it is finished. How can anything be lacking in Christ's afflictions? And to push it a little further, look at verse 22 of Colossians chapter 1. It says, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. doesn't sound like there's anything else you can do. Sounds like it's pretty done. Look in chapter 2 verse 14. having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And we talked about Wednesday night. Canceled out literally means to expunge, to blot out completely, as in to wipe away. 
So with that in mind, we come to this verse and, and we have to ask, is Paul now implying that Christ's crucifixion needs a supplement? That there's something I have to do? His crucifixion takes me just so far, but then I've got to make payments on the rest. He's the down payment, you know. Gets the ball rolling for us. Thank you, Lord. But now we've got to work the work and get ourselves into the kingdom. Here's the answer. Paul is not talking about what was lacking in the work of Christ. He's talking about filling up what is lacking in Christ's body, the church. What's lacking in Christ's body. Now, think about this with me. Let's work this through a little bit. This is not about reconciliation. This is not about redemption. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions cannot speak about redemption because we've already learned over and over and over that His redemption was paid in full. So we cannot be talking about that. Paul is covering something else. This is about filling up what will be filled up before it's all said and done. Note a couple of things. First of all, the use of the word affliction here. He says in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The word affliction is thlipsis. T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Those Greeks. We don't put letters together like that. I have trouble saying it. Thlipsis is the word. And it means tribulation. It means hardship. Matthew 24.9, Jesus said, They will deliver you to thlipsis tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name Paul said in Romans 5 verse 3 we exult in our tribulations afflictions philipsis knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint and we're going to get to that hope momentarily but listen afflictions Tribulations, anytime you see that word in the scripture that is translated from the word philipsis, philipsis is a church word. It is never once applied to Jesus. It is only and always applied to his followers, to his body, to the church. This is never used to describe the sufferings of Christ. His sufferings are never called afflictions. His sufferings, as a matter of fact, were in a completely different category than yours and mine. We we can't honestly compare. We can't say, I'm having such a bad day, that makes me more like Jesus. No, because your sufferings are nothing like His work. We suffer on a temporal plane. He suffered on an eternal one. The pains and the anguish and the sorrow of Jesus at the cross was an eternal issue. Our pains and issues and problems are temporary. Can't put them in the same category. We have afflictions. He suffered. Okay, do you see the difference? And throughout Scripture, the only time where you could say, ah, but it is used of Christ is right here. Where it's referred to as Christ's afflictions. And Paul says, I'm doing my part. I'm sharing in the filling up of the afflictions of Christ. Or in what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Remember that Jesus is, 1 John 2 verse 1, the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Your sufferings, you may suffer for one or two or three or four other people. You may go through something that's really tough on behalf of these other people. Nobody has ever suffered for the sins of the entire world. 
Again, Jesus is in a different category. Paul's not talking about the afflictions of Christ, of, of Christ Jesus, but the afflictions of Christ's body, which is the church. Colossians 2.13 tells us when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Note this, having canceled out, having blotted out, again, the certificate of debt. He took care of that. He wiped it away. And that's what He suffered to accomplish. So, let me be very clear. It is not Christ's redemption that needs to be filled up. It's our participation in the afflictions of His body. Our participation in the afflictions of Christ. That needs filling up. Not as a requirement of our salvation. Not as a requirement of righteousness. But as a reality of the last days. This is an eschatological statement that Paul is making. Let me make it even more plain if I can. Imagine a 2,000 gallon tank. Just a big empty vat. 2,000 gallons, roughly the size of maybe a small uh, swimming pool or or baptistry, about 2,000 gallons. And it's being slowly filled drop by drop by drop of affliction. Think about it. Peter and John in prison, drops of affliction. And all the apostles, drops of affliction. Then Stephen's martyrdom, more drops of affliction. James' death by the sword, Paul's many afflictions. 1 Corinthians 4.11, to this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless and we toil. We're working with our hands and when we're reviled we bless and when we're persecuted we endure and when we're slandered we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now drop, drop, drop filling up the afflictions filling up that that container and Tertullian is the one who in the early 2nd century famously wrote the blood of martyrs is seed every drop every affliction every martyrdom every sorrow, every difficulty In the name of Jesus Christ, slowly filling up that 2,000 gallon tank. Tertullian was the one who reported of a man who, for example, had his afflictions. He was literally fried alive in a large brass bowl for his faith in Jesus. And his name was Antipas. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, Jesus said, where Satan's throne is. We talk about living in a post-Christian world. How about dwelling where Satan's throne is? He says, I recognize that. And he says, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The struggle is real. That's legitimate. That's affliction. And so through 2,000 years, draw by drop, by precious drop, is slowly filling up the afflictions of the body of Christ. And there's a precious future scene where there, beneath the throne of God in heaven, all of the saints, those who have died in the tribulation, people who have been beheaded for their faith, martyred for their trust in Jesus at that time, who are all gathered around and beneath the throne of God. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10 says, They cried out with a large voice, a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? 
will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. you got to wait until it gets filled up. Wait until the afflictions reach the full. Wait until it's done. Filling up what is lacking in the afflictions. Are you saying, Rick, that I might be fried alive in a large brass bowl? Well, I hope not. I would say that's unlikely in these days, although Antipas probably didn't live his life expecting such an end. But our brother Antipas truly was, and there's a very real blowback for remaining faithful to Jesus, and that blowback is increasing, at least in our nation. The difficulty of living for Christ in the public domain is becoming greater and greater. And some of you have some hard decisions ahead of you. Not me, I'm fine, but some of you. (laughs) Some of us will face things that right now we can't imagine, that we do not expect. How do we face them and yet rejoice? Hey, if we are suffering for or in the name of Jesus, we not only have the revelation of Him at the beginning of our faith and the revelation of Him at the end of our faith, but we have the revelation of His faithfulness even in the midst of our afflictions and we can rejoice in that. We are part of what is filling up the 2,000 gallon, well, 2,000 years of the church age. Paul says, I'm just doing my part. If I can suffer for Jesus on behalf of the church, wow, bring it on. I rejoice in such a thing. Why? Well, Paul said in Philippians 3.10 that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. And Jesus said so gently, so sweetly, John 16.33, These things I have spoken to you so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. So may we be blessed to rejoice in our fair share of the afflictions of what is yet lacking in the body of Christ until we reach the tipping point, until we come to that moment, that second, that instant where we hear Jesus say, come up here and we are taken out of this world and it's all done and we get the glorious revelation of meeting Jesus in the clouds. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. And Paul says, comfort each other. Why do we need comfort? Because there are going to be afflictions. You're going to suffer For your faith in Jesus. Rejoice in that. Paul calls it the blessed hope. Titus 2.13 The rapture of the church. That's the blessed hope. We look forward to that. We have a desire for it. It's a hope that we are wonderfully filled with even in affliction. A glorious hope. Paul calls it the hope of glory. Hold that thought. We'll come to it. i got to back up because I'm afflicted by the sunshine. So... Struggle's real. (laughs) All right, verse 25. Verse 25. Of this church. Do we all understand that verse, by the way? Are we good? Okay, okay. That that was a struggle. (laughs) It was real. That's a tough verse. 
But Paul truly is referring when he says Christ's afflictions. And, and I'll tell you one other thing that's interesting that I was reading last week. It's the Hebrew mindset that so intimately connects to Messiah. And you may remember back in the book of Isaiah where the people of Israel and Isaiah and the servant Messiah are sometimes over, there's an overlap there. God calls Israel his servant, but he also calls Messiah his servant. And so Paul is saying, look, we as the body of Christ identify with Christ. Yes, he went through sufferings we will never experience, but we have afflictions because we are identified with him and we're filling those up. Anyway, it's fascinating writing and, and Paul is just brilliant and intimate in his description of a Christ-centered life. Verse 25, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your behalf so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Fully carry out. So filling, that is filling up the afflictions. Secondly, fulfilling. Paul says, I was given this ministry to fully carry it out, to fulfill the ministry to which I was called, and that word is pleruo, fullness, to fulfill. So a second characteristic here, again, of a Christ-centered life is not only are we part of the filling up of the afflictions that will come upon the church, but we are called to lives that are fulfilling the stewardship. That we have all been given, and I cannot underscore that enough, we have all been given a stewardship. Each of us. When you receive Christ, you also receive a responsibility. You receive an involvement. You receive an oikonomia, is the word there for stewardship. It's the same word that's used for a house servant. And that we come into that service A stewardship from Jesus that we are called upon to fulfill. Simply put here, Paul is saying, I'm a steward of the house of God whose job it is to fulfill the Word of God. Now that's as huge as the previous verse. Talking about filling up the afflictions. Now we're talking about our responsibility to fulfill the Word of God. That is a big deal. Paul expressed this same idea to another church. He said in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. So, while the that of affliction is filling up, the faithful are about the business of fulfilling the Word of God. So, If I tell you, which I am, as followers of Jesus Christ, you have a responsibility, and that is to fulfill the Word of God. Well, what does that mean? I'm supposed to fulfill the Word of God? Well, we talked about it last week. Preach the Word. Teach Jesus. We are called to fulfill the Word. To be bringers of that word. Now, here's the reality in a post-Christian world. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. You know, I'll tell you this, I just had a recent conversation with a (laughs) non-believer, And the, the conversation went something like, well, you know, I, I pray. I, I, I have some agreement. In your, you know, you talk about praying to God and praying to Jesus. I have some agreement in that, but I pray. I, I throw it out there to the universe. 
And I said, you throw it out there to the universe. What part of the universe is going to respond? I mean, really, where where are you? Who are you telling here? Think about the difference if you were standing in an empty room by yourself and you just threw out a sentence like, "Boy, I'm lonely and I wish someone was here with me." What good is that going to do? As opposed to going up to a human being and saying, "Hey, I'm lonely. I need some time." Well, now you've got response, right? And we true. This is a this is a deal. This is a millennial thought right here. That the universe, there is order out there. And so we're just going to kind of trust that the universe has a plan for us. We're going to pray and throw it out there to the universe and whoever might be listening. And I hear Paul say they turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myth. And that's the world we live in. And so what does is, what is Paul tell Timothy to do in such a, an environment? He says, 2 Timothy 4, 5, But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I love that Paul never says to Timothy, grow your church big. Develop your logo, make a stamp. No. He says, fulfill your ministry, whether there are two people in the room or 200 people. Whether there's one person you're talking to in your life or 50 people makes no difference. Fulfill your ministry. Your ministry is the point. Fulfill the Word of God. Barna Research and Pepperdine University just recently uh, got together to do a survey on the state of pastors in our, con- in our country. And there are several statistics that Barna put out about the state of pastors and pastoral leadership and the influence that used to be very strong 200 years ago in America and now is very weak. And one of the statistics that came out of this was that one in five adults out of 960 surveyed, one in five considered their pastors or pastors in general to be credible. I read that and I thought, whose fault is that? What is it that makes a pastor credible? Is it their massive integrity? Is it their long years of training? Is it their degrees? Oh, he's credible because he went to such and such a school or has such and such a degree. Is it their self-righteousness? He's credible because, man, look at how perfect he is. What is it that makes a pastor credible? Let me tell you, my only credibility here at the British Christian Fellowship is Jesus Christ. That's it. I have no other credibility. I have nothing else to offer you. I understand that fully 99% of you would not be here. 1% would, my family. Most of them. You would not be here in this fellowship if it was about me. You would not be here if the Bible wasn't being taught. You would not be here if Christ was not proclaimed. And I know this week in, week out, when people come in the door, they're coming to hear about Jesus. They're coming to open up the Bible and to be taught of the Word of God. And even in that, to have their Bibles opened and challenge the pastor from time to time to be sure his theology is biblical. Because this is my credibility right here. Why don't pastors have credibility? Because they stand up there and they give little homiletic sermons ten minutes long about these frilly things out of the universe. Who cares? 
I don't want to hear that. And the moment something is done without integrity, or the moment there's some flaw discovered in their character, which I know you haven't discovered any in mine yet, but you will, the moment that happens, you look at the person and go, not credible. I need to find another church. Here, and and I'm all kidding aside, I have had people frustrated with me, angry with me, upset with me, and yet able to sit here on Sunday morning and listen to teaching. Why? Because it's the Word of God. And that's what matters. That's where our credibility comes from. What then makes a Christian credible? What What gives you the right to tell me how to live my life? What gives you the right? See, there's, there's the blowback that oftentimes will cause a Christian to step back and go, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend. No, no, no. You have a right. You have a credibility. You have an authority. You have Jesus Christ. What gives you the right to think that you have any wisdom? Well, I've got several thousand pages right here that didn't come from me. They came from God. I'm just telling you what He's told me. I'm telling you what I have learned of Jesus. And how that affects my life. That's how I have the right to talk to you. I'm talking from an eternal platform here. And it's not one that I set up. It's one that Jesus Christ set up. How can you talk to me about these things? I talk to you about these things because God knows better. And I'm just speaking on behalf of Him. Like Paul, we have all been given this fulfilling stewardship to fulfill the Word of God by sharing Jesus Christ. Not speaking out of our own heads, out of our own wisdom, out of our own life experience and our knowledge. No, just speaking Jesus. Because as we talked about Wednesday, He is the one in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want revelation? You want understanding? You want to know how to live in this world? You go to Jesus. So while we're in the process of filling up the afflictions as they come and go, we're fulfilling the Word of God. I can share this knowledge. I have this wisdom because I have been, number three, filled. I have been filled. And this is perhaps the single most astounding and exciting reality of the Christ-centered life. Listen again, let me pull back to verse 25. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might carry, fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, and here it is, watch this, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been, but has now been manifested to His saints, His holy one, holy ones, that's believers, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this ministry, or mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, that's one of those verses that just reads like a power punch. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yeah, I love the sound of that. And what does that mean? (laughs) Excuse me? I have been filled. You have been filled if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, buckle up. This is huge. We have been filled by that which was for eons a mystery. 
and unknown. Only to be revealed in Jesus. What Paul said, Romans 16.25, the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. And here Paul adds to this, he calls it this mystery, note this, underscore it, among the Gentiles. This is a mystery in its full revelation that was not even known to good Jewish boys and girls across 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ. Not even known. They didn't understand. What's the mystery? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. The mystery is Christ. The mystery is Christ in you. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the summation of the mystery. Now, get this, it's amazing to me. Conventional wisdom, conventional scholarship used to think that Paul was simply contrasting this mystery with the mystery teachings of paganism in and around Phrygian Southwest Asia. They were talking about mysterious stuff, and so Paul said, Oh, oh no, we have a mystery too. And so a lot of commentators think that's what the deal was. I believe Paul was drawing directly from his own Hebrew roots to talk about a mystery that had already been proclaimed a mystery long ages before, roughly about five and a half hundred years before. And curiously, the presentation, the first speaking of this mystery came through a Jewish prophet And it was spoken to a Gentile king. The mystery. The Greek word mystery, mysterion. The Hebrew equivalent word is rods. R-A-Z. Rods. Rods is used nine times in the Old Testament. All by the same prophet. It's the only time, if you do a word search of the Hebrew Scriptures, it's the only time the word mystery pops up. By this prophet... In two chapters in his one prophecy, again, it's used nine times, or variations of the word are used nine times, eight times in one chapter. So you begin to realize, wow, we're getting honed down to where this mystery comes from. Where this mystery that Paul has now unveiled to us, where it was originally declared. It's very laser specific in the Hebrew Scriptures. One chapter, one prophet, and it's used eight times in that chapter. And by the way, of the eight times... This mystery, the phrase, this mystery, referring to, I believe, the mystery of Christ in you. The hope of glory. This mystery is used five times. Which in the Bible is the number of grace. And I don't think that that is just by coincidence. So where is this chapter we're talking about? Turn in your Bibles back quickly to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. We've had a teaching on filling up the afflictions, a teaching on fulfilling the Word of God, and now (laughs) being filled with the mystery. I just love this. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Let me give you the backstory. It says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and and his sleep left him. And the king gave orders to call the magicians and the conjurers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. 
So they came in and they stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream in my spirit. And my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. So then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. (laughs) Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. He was on to them. They said, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. It's like, no, no, I will only know you know what it means if you can tell me the dream yourselves. Go ahead. And if not, not a big problem. We're just going to rip you apart. Well, a certain young Hebrew named Daniel was counted among the wise men who were about to be torn apart. He was not apparently present in this meeting, but word gets back to Daniel. Daniel goes to Arioch, the captain of the guard. He says, wait a minute, whoa, give, give me a chance here. And Arioch takes him before the king and he goes before the king and he says, give me a chance to explain or at least to pray to the God of heaven to find out the answer to what's going on down in verse 16. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. And then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, uh, inform them about this matter. Can you imagine that conversation? Um, guys, we need to have a small group. Got a little something I want to pray about together. A, a, a potential affliction that's right now very disarming for me. And so he said, let's pray that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this. And here's the first time you see it. Mystery. Concerning this rods. So that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Well, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And he prays a marvelous prayer. You can read the prayer when you have a chance. But go on down to verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. In other words, we don't have this kind of information. We don't have the credibility to share you out of our own heads. You know what we were just talking about. Where does our credibility come from? It comes from Christ. And so Daniel says very clearly, none of us have the ability to do this. He says, however... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Note that, in the latter days, the last days. The Bible is always pointing to that last age, the age that we're in. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. As for you, O King, while you were on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. He who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. As for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. This is so God can speak to you, not so that I can. I love Daniel. He's so humble. He has the right attitude of a person with a Christ-centered life. That I'm telling you about Jesus, not for my own benefit, but for yours, that you might know him. 
I'm not trying to present myself as anything more than you. We're all human beings on this planet. But He's got something. And I'm just telling you about that. Go to Him. That's what Daniel is up to here. Well, verse 31, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, was, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar listening to Daniel explain to him his dream? Royal eyes getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That is exactly what I dreamed. How could he possibly know? Especially something so specific. Daniel continues, verse 34, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. So this is a supernatural thing. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so there was not a trace of them to be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel then goes on. Now here's the dream. He's just told the king exactly what he saw. And he begins to explain it to him. That the statue represents various kingdoms. The gold head, Nebuchadnezzar, that's representative of Babylon. And, and the silver arms and chest, that's, that's the Medes and the Persians, which will be the next great nation. And then the bronze belly and legs, that's, that's Greece. And then the, the legs of iron, that's Rome. And then the feet of iron and clay, that's, that's going to be something that comes out of Rome at a later date. But listen, listen. Here's the Raz. Here's the mystery. Down in verse 44, in those days, or in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure, how long? Forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it was, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. A little bit of drool coming out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth as he's just... Jesus is the supernatural stone. The rock that was cut out without hands. He is the hope of the mystery. This mystery, Paul writes, back again now in Colossians chapter 1, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. It was bigger than any of the Jewish people could have imagined. Now I suppose there were one or two or three that were reading Daniel back in the day and they read of this this stone that would become a mountain to cover the whole earth and perhaps the old rabbi said, that's the future kingdom. The kingdom promised to David. That's what he's talking about. And perhaps they thought that much through. They had no idea. No idea that the hope that we have is because the mystery is in us. 
The mystery is not just revealed to us. The mystery has come to reside within us. Romans 5.2, Paul says, We exult in the hope of the glory of God. Well, that sounds good. Yeah, I hope I see the glory someday. I hope I see that coming kingdom someday. It's more than that. The hope is in you because the glory is in you because Christ is in you. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Christ in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And in that same chapter, Paul says, Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But you can't even compare. We fill up the afflictions. Yes, we do our part in filling up the great vat of all of the afflictions of the church. We're in that. That's great. Glory be to God if I can suffer for Him. I was revealed Jesus when I first gave my life to Him. I recognized who He was by faith. I will see Him in all His glory. And in the meantime, Christ is in me. I have Christ in me. You know, we talk about living the Christ-centric life as if it's some exterior thing. It comes from within and out. It comes first from recognizing Jesus is here. He is with me. I don't depart my house and leave Him behind. He is with me wherever I go. And that knowledge, that revelation, that recognition causes me then to be Christocentric in my behavior, in my thinking, in, in my action. It's not my glory. The hope of glory, it's not the hope that one day I'll be glorified. It's the hope of His glory that is already present in me. Living a Christocentric life, again, is not centering yourself on Him. It's recognizing that Christ has centered Himself on you. And that is a mind-boggling thought. And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. The mystery is Christ. The mystery is Christ in you. The mystery is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The blessed hope. And so we shall all finally be, number four, full. We shall be full. Verse 28, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may also present every man complete in Christ. Now when Paul says every man, three times, he's not being sexist. You know, the phrase is remarkably universal. Every man is panta, that is everything, or every or all, anthropon. Paul is saying, all humanity, all humanity, all humanity. Let me read it that way. We proclaim Him admonishing all humanity and teaching all humanity with all wisdom so that we may present all humanity complete in Christ. That's a big mission, gang. How are we doing? We still have some work to do, don't we? We have some word to fulfill, don't we? But that's why we're here. That's what this is about. And this universal presentation, I've told you before, it is not universal salvation, it's universal invitation. 
that across the board, every human being is universally invited to come to Jesus Christ and to know the hope of glory. Not all will receive the invitation. But it is ours to give it to everyone without qualification that no one who ha- who no one is left out who has come to Christ and that all may be made full, complete by faith in Him. And understand this. You will never be finished, never be complete, never be satisfied, never be perfected without the finishing work of Jesus. That is the only way any human being ever will find fulfillment. Everything else is hogwash. That Greek word, by the way, complete, is teleos, which is the same root word that Jesus used when He said on the cross, to telos die, it is finished. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the finisher of our faith. The fulfiller of all of it. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I promise you, that day is hurtling toward us. Soon and very soon is not just a nice thought. It is a deep reality. The day is fast approaching when all of this will take place. All of the afflictions will be filled up. The word will be fulfilled. The filled followers of Christ will be made full. And on that day, nothing else will matter. None of our agenda items will matter in the least. And this is not the stuff of fiction. It's not the stuff of philosophy or false religion or folklore like the Colossians we're dealing with and like we have to deal with today. This is the stuff of reality because, hey, the struggle is real. And Paul ends by saying, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. Will you be filled with the hope of glory? Will you trust Jesus and simply live the Christ-centered life? If you are a Christian, you are filled with the hope of glory. So what are you waiting for? What aspect of fulfilling the Word of God have you not finished? What have you not done that the Lord has called you to do? And if you are not a Christian this morning, the hope of Christ in you, the mystery, can be unveiled before you today if you will come to Him in faith. Let's pray together. Father, we just now ask for freedom to respond to You. Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, I push back against anything that would hold a person back. Anything that would keep us in our seats, Lord. I pray that this place would be an unhindered place as we worship You. To come to You. Father, whether it's someone who needs to declare faith in You for the first time, or someone who has been struggling to find that fulfillment in their own life, Lord Jesus, I pray that You will draw us out to come to You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.